0: Chapter Two of the First Violin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Violin by Jessie Fothergill. Chapter Two. Traversant gravement ces méchants, masquerade qu'on appelle le monde. The houses in Skernford, the houses of the gentry, that is to say, lay almost all on one side, an old-fashioned, sleepy-looking green, towards which their entrances lay but their real front, their pleasantest aspect, was on their other side, facing the river which ran below, and down to which their gardens sloped in terraces. Our house, the vicarage, lay nearest the church, Miss Hallam's house, the grange, furthest from the church. Between these, larger and more imposing in grounds, besides which ours seemed to dwindle down to a few flower-beds, lay Deeplish Hall whose owner, Sir Peter le Marchant, had lately come to live there, at least for a time. It was many years since Sir Peter le Marchant, whose image at this time was fated to enter so largely and so much against my will into all my calculations, had lived or even visited his estate at Skernford. He was a man of immense property and report said that deeplish hall which we innocent villagers looked upon as such an imposing mansion was but one and not the grandest of his several country houses all that i knew of his history or rather all that i had heard of it whether truly or not i was in no position to say was but a vague and misty account yet that little had given me a dislike to him before i ever met him Miss Hallam, our neighbour, who lived in such solitude and retirement, was credited with having a history, if report had only been able to fix upon what it was. She was popularly supposed to be of a grim and decidedly eccentric disposition. Eccentric she was, as I afterwards found, as I thought when I first saw her. She seldom appeared either in church or upon any other public occasion, and was said to be the deadly enemy of sir peter le marchand and all pertaining to him there was some old far-back romance connected with it a romance which i did not understand for up to now i had never known either her or sir peter sufficiently to take any interest in the story but the report ran that in days gone by how far gone by too they must have been miss hallam a young and handsome heiress loved very devotedly her one sister and that sister so much was known as a fact had become lady le marchand was not her monument in the church between the deeplish hall and the hallam grange pews was not the tale of her virtues and her years seven-and-twenty only did she count of the latter there recorded that barbara hallam had been married to sir peter was matter of history what was not a matter of history but of tradition which was believed in quite as firmly was that the baronet had ill-treated his wife in what way was not distinctly specified but i have since learned that this was true that she was a gentle creature and he made her life miserable unto her she was idolized by her elder sister who burning with indignation at the treatment to which her darling had been subjected had become even in disposition an altered woman from a cheerful open-hearted generous somewhat brusque young person she had grown into a prematurely old soured revengeful woman it was to her that the weak and injured sister had fled it was in her arms that she had died since her sister's death miss hallam had withdrawn entirely from society cherishing a perpetual grudge against sir peter le marchant whether she had relations or none friends or acquaintances outside the small village in which she lived none knew if so they limited their intercourse with her to correspondence for no visitor ever penetrated to her damp old grange nor had she ever been known to leave it with the purpose of making any journey abroad if perfect silence and perfect retirement could hush the tongues of tradition and report then miss hallam's story should have been forgotten it was not forgotten. Such things never do become forgotten. It was only since Sir Peter had appeared suddenly, some six weeks ago, at Deeplish Hall, that these dry bones of tradition had, for me, quickened into something like life, and acquired a kind of interest for me. Our father, as vicar of the parish, had naturally called upon Sir Peter, and, as naturally, invited him to his house. His visits had begun by his coming to lunch one day and we had speculated about him a little in advance half jestingly raking up old stories and attributing to him various evil qualities of a hard and loveless old age but after he had gone the verdict of stella and myself was much worse than we expected he was different from what we had expected perhaps that annoyed us instead of being able to laugh at him we found something oppressive chilling To me, frightful, in the cold, sneering smile which seemed perpetually hovering about his thin lips, in the fixed, snaky glitter of his still intent gray eyes. His face was pale, his manners were polished, but to meet his eye was a thing I hated, and the touch of his hand made me shudder. While speaking in the politest possible manner, he had eyed over Adelaide and me in a manner which i do not think either of us had ever experienced before i hated him from the moment in which i saw him looking at me with expression of approval to be approved by sir peter le marchand could fate devise anything more horrible yes i knew now that it could one might have to submit to the approval to live in the approval I had expressed my opinion on the subject, with freedom, to Adelaide, who, to my surprise, had disagreed with me, and had told me, coldly, that I had no business to speak disrespectfully of my father's visitors. I was silenced, but unhappy. From the first moment of seeing Sir Peter, I had felt an uncomfortable, uneasy feeling, which, had I been sentimental, I might have called a presentiment but i was not sentimental i was a healthy young girl of seventeen believing in true love and goodness and gentleness very earnestly fancy free having read few novels and heard no gossiping a very baby in many respects our home might be a quiet one a poor one a dull one our circle of acquaintance small our distractions of the most limited description imaginable but at least we knew no evil and i speak for stella and myself thought none our father and mother were persons with nothing whatever remarkable about them both had been handsome my mother was pretty my father good-looking yet i loved them both dearly it had never entered my head to do otherwise than love them But the love which made the star and the poetry of my quiet and unromantic life was that I bore to Adelaide, my eldest sister. I believed in her devotedly, and accepted her judgment, given in her own peculiar, proud, decided way, upon every topic on which she chose to express it. She was one and twenty, and I used to think I could lay down my life for her, It was consequently a shock to me to hear her speak in praise, yes, in praise, of Sir Peter Le Marchant. My first impulse was to distrust my own judgment. But no, I could no longer do so. He was repulsive. He was stealthy, hard, cruel in appearance. I could not account for Adelaide's perversity in liking him, and passed puzzled days and racked my brain in conjecture as to why— when sir peter came adelaide should be always at home always neat and fresh not like me why was adelaide who found it too much trouble to join stella and me in our homely concerts always ready to indulge sir peter's taste for music to entertain him with conversation and she could talk she was unlike me in that respect i never had a brilliant gift of conversation She was witty about the things she did know, and never committed the fatal mistake of pretending to be up in the things she did not know. These gifts of mind, these social powers, were always ready for the edification of Sir Peter. By degrees, the truth forced itself upon me. Someone said, I overheard it, that that handsome Miss Wedderburn was undoubtedly setting her cap at Sir Peter Le Marchant never shall i forget the fury which at first possessed me the conviction which gradually stole over me that it was true my sister adelaide beautiful proud clever and i had always thought good had distinctly in view the purpose of becoming lady le marchand i shed countless tears over the miserable discovery and dared not speak to her of it that was not the worst. My horizon darkened. One horrible day I discovered that it was I, and not Adelaide, who had attracted Sir Peter's attraction. It was not a scene, not a set declaration. It was a word in that smooth voice, a glance from that hated and chilling eye, which suddenly aroused me to the truth, shuddering, dismayed i locked the matter up within my own breast and wished with a longing that sometimes made me quite wretched that i could quit skernford my home my life which had lost zest for me and was become a burden to me the knowledge that sir peter admired me absolutely degraded me in my own eyes i felt as if i could not hold up my head I had spoken to no one of what had passed within me, and I trusted it had been unnoticed, but all my joy was gone. It was as if I stood helpless while a noisome reptile closed its folds around me. To day, after Miss Hallam's departure, I dropped into my now chronic state of listlessness and sadness. They all came back. My father from the church, my mother and Adelaide from Darton, whither they had been on a shopping expedition, Stella from a stroll by the river. We had tea, and they dispersed quite cheerfully to their various occupations. I, seeing the gloaming gently and dim falling over the earth, walked out of the house into the garden, and took my way towards the river. I passed an arbor in which Stella and I had loved to sit and watch the stream, and talk and read Miss Austin's novels. Stella was there now with a well-thumbed copy of Pride and Prejudice in her hand. Come and sit down, May, she apostrophized me. Do listen to this about Bingley and Wickham. No, thank you, said I abstractedly, and feeling that Stella was not the person to whom I could confide my woe. Indeed, on scanning mentally the list of my acquaintance i found that there was not one in whom i could confide it gave me a strange sense of loneliness and aloofness and hardened me more than the reading of a hundred satires on the meannesses of society i went along the terrace by the river-side and looked up to the left terrace of sir peter again there was the terrace of deeplish hall which stood on a height just above a bend in the river. It was a final place. The sheen of the glass-houses caught the rays of the sun and glanced in them. It looked rich, old, and peaceful. I had been many a time through its gardens, and thought them beautiful, and wished they belonged to me. Now I felt that they lay in a manner at my feet, and my strongest feeling respecting them was an earnest wish that i might never see them again thus agreeably meditating i insensibly left our own garden and wandered on in this now quickly falling twilight into a narrow path leading across a sort of no-man's-land into the demesne of sir peter le marchand in my trouble i scarcely remarked where i was going and with my eyes cast upon the ground was wishing that i could feel again as i once had felt when i nothing had and yet enough and was sadly wondering what i could do to escape from the net in which i felt myself caught when a shadow darkened the twilight in which i stood and looking up i saw sir peter and heard these words good evening miss wedderburn are you enjoying a little stroll by as it seemed to me some strange miracle all my inward fears and tremblings vanished i did not feel afraid of sir peter in the least i felt that here was a crisis this meeting would show me whether my fears had been groundless and my own vanity and self-consciousness of unparalleled proportions or whether i had judged truly and had good reason for my qualms and anticipations. It came. The alarm had not been a false one. Sir Peter, after conversing with me for a short time, did in clear and unmistakable terms inform me that he loved me, and asked me to marry him. I thank you, said I, mastering my impulse to cover my face with my hands, and run shuddering away from him. I thank you for the honor you offer me and beg to decline it he looked surprised and still continued to urge me in a manner which roused a deep inner feeling of indignation within me for it seems to say that he understood me to be overwhelmed with the honor he proposed to confer upon me and humored my timidity about accepting it There was no doubt in his manner, not the shadow of a suspicion that I could be in earnest. There was something that turned my heart cold within me, a cool, sneering tone, which not all his professions of affection could disguise. Since that time I have heard Sir Peter explicitly state his conception of the sphere of women in the world. It was not an exalted one. He could not even now quite conceal that while he told me he wished to make me his wife, and the partner of his heart and possessions. Yet he knew that such professions were but words, that he did not sue for my love. Poor Sir Peter! I doubt if ever in his long life he was blessed with even a momentary glimpse of the divine countenance of pure love, but offered to buy my youth, and such poor beauty as I might have, with his money and his other worldly advantages sir peter was a blank utter skeptic with regard to the worth of women he did not believe in their virtue nor their self-respect he believed them to be clever actresses and taken all in all the best kind of amusement to be had for money the mind of opinion was then new to me the effect of it upon my mind such as might be expected i was seventeen and an ardent believer in all things pure and of good report nevertheless i remained composed sedate even courteous to the last till i had fairly made sir peter understand that no earthly power should induce me to marry him till i had let him see that i fully comprehended the advantages of the position he offered to me and declined them miss wedderburn said he at last and his voice was as unruffled as my own had it been more angry i should have feared it less do you fear opposition i do not think your parents would refuse their consent to our union i closed my eyes for a moment and a hand seemed to tighten about my heart then i said i speak without reference to my parents in such a matter i judge for myself always the same answer always the same answer sir peter it would be most ungentlemanly to press the subject any further his eyes were fixed upon me with the same cold snake-like smile i will not be guilty of such a solecism your family affections my dear young lady are strong i should suppose which whom do you love best surprised at the blunt straightforwardness of the question as coming from him i replied thoughtlessly oh my sister adelaide indeed i should imagine she was in every way worthy the esteem of so disinterested a person as yourself a different disposition though quite "'You will allow me to touch your hand before I retire?' "'Trembling with uneasy forebodings, roused by his continual sneering smile "'and the peculiar evil light in his eyes, "'I yet went through with my duty to the end. "'He took the hand I extended and raised it to his lips with a low bow. "'Good evening, Miss Wedderburn.' Faintly returning his valediction, I saw him go away, and then, in a dream, amaze, a bewilderment, I, too, turned slowly away and walked to the house again. I felt, I knew I had behaved well and discreetly, but I had no confidence whatever that the matter was at an end. End of chapter 2